Aaron Lawler-Patterson, The Goodness Chick. I'm a podcaster, motivational speaker, author, counselor, and proud part of the Mental Health News Radio Network. Join me on the journey of navigating the joys and pitfalls of life, addressing mental health, addiction, raising kids, and giving back. If it takes a village, then join me as one of those villagers. Villagers wanted. Hey, Goodness Chick friends and family, I want to thank you for tuning in today, uh, kind of keeping you in the loop when it comes to our recent Patreon campaign uh, with Goodness Chick that will allow expanding the vision, mission, and reaching more listeners when it comes to Goodness Chick talking about all things mental health, addiction, life as we know it. So it's lots of good things happening, but in order to kind of keep the wagon rolling, and purchasing new equipment, hiring personnel, and all things involved with this process started a Patreon campaign. Very excited about it. If this is something that you're interested in, it's a contribution of either five, ten, or twenty dollars a month um, that goes right towards uh, our mission. And something I am very grateful and humbled for. Giving a shout out for some of our most recent contributors would be Paul and Brenda Lawler, along with Maureen McGinn. Thank you guys from the bottom of my heart for being a part of this mission. Boom. So rolling into today's episode, had the privilege and honor of um, having Randy Grimes, um, NFL alum of the Tampa Buccaneers, uh, be a guest on today's show. Amazing, amazing human being who really has a passion and heart um, for speaking to people, inspiring people when it comes to um, addiction, the opiate epidemic, recovery. Uh, he's coming up on almost 10 years clean. I'm very impressed with his heart and his passion. And one of the things we kind of hit on a, a bit today was the reality of transitions that many of us, um, all of us at some point come across, whether it's transitions from, you know, we have kids in middle school to high school, college to the real world, retirement, going from, you know, our workplace to retirement to those in, in the world of athletics, such as himself, went from his identity being in as a football player and kind of having to redefine himself, self-image, and all that jazz. And it's something I think we definitely don't talk enough about, but affects people in so many ways. And how, when it's not handled in the proper way or addressed in a healthy manner, it can lead to really... Um, poor decisions, right, that can manifest themselves in a lot of things, and that, that includes addiction, includes self-harming behavior. So I'm really happy that you're here today. Tune in, and uh, feel free to pass this along, my friends, and thank you from the bottom of my heart for being part of the Goodness Chick family. All right, so excited for today's episode. I have uh, the great fortune of being in the midst of the ever so excellent Randy Grimes. Oh, like that sweet. Dun, dun, dun. Um, at my place of business. At your place of business. Can, can you say that? I can say it, yes, okay. yes. Transformation yes. Treatment Center in Delray Beach, Florida. Boom, we're right here. We're yeah. sitting here in one of the conference rooms. Um, enjoyed kind of getting uh, you know a tour of the layout here, the facility. Um, for providing treatment services for those whiteboard, we, we yes. could have written some messages subliminal. <laughs> or subliminal messages. <laughs> I see them, and if you look closely, you might see them. Um, but excited to have Randy here today. Uh, about a week and a half, two weeks ago, we mm. met at a town hall meeting um, up in St. John's County, and mm -hmm. was excited to be able to come down and do a visit here. Talk a little bit about St. John's is St. Augustine. Isn't it St. John's? It's St. Augustine. No, isn't it St. John's County? I have no idea. It's a county. I was uh, in St. Augustine, Florida, St. Augustine, which is the oldest city in the country. You knew that, 
I did know that. Yes, yes, I knew that. So that was, um, that's an extra bonus. That is. History that's like plus two points. Um, <laughs> uh, I think it's in St. John's County, but okay. I'm going to have to Google that one later. Really uh, it's all good. So it's somewhere up there in, uh, in Florida. We are still in Florida, just a different part of Florida. Mm -hmm. And I uh, wanted to talk a little bit about um, you, but also how... It's my um, favorite subject. It is. It is. I'll give you 49 minutes on the dot. <laughs> just kidding. Um, you know, you played for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers for right. 10 years, 83 years. to 93. Um, and you know, one of the things that kind of stuck with me when I heard you speak a few weeks ago is not only your passion for speaking and working with people, but what led you to the field that you're in right now in well, terms of, yeah. I mean, if you don't mind sharing your story a little bit and, no, and no. how I feel like you kind of really, um, man, I think about all, so we have so many middle school and high school and college athletes out there that, um, you know, find their identity solely in their mm -hmm. sport and, you know, have an injury or something happens where they're no longer an athlete. Right, right. And the we devastation, yeah, you know, we can work. Guys that never quit right. running or lifting or, or doing whatever sport they love to do. You know? yeah, and then it's gone. And then it's gone. So for you, you were, you, you you know, if you want to kind of give a little bit about your background, you went to Baylor University, mm -hmm. you were a second round draft pick. I don't have to give it now, well, you just did. Boom, right there. <laughs> Goodness, Chick is giving it all away. Um, but, you know, you, you, you were going, <laughs> going full fledged ahead, and then, you know, um, prescription pill addiction right. kind of came to grips. When, when did that begin? to um evolve for you I, it didn't did it not not you didn't have that issue at all when it, it no no college. growing up uh nothing there was no indication of what lied ahead for me there was no history of substance abuse in my family I, my parents i never saw them touch a drop of alcohol or brother and sister same way mm -hmm. you know they were great role models and there was just absolutely Nothing that would indicate that I would have a problem, even in college. You know, I met my wife the first day of school. I married her after a junior year. You know, there was, uh, you know, other than having a few beers every now and then with the guys, uh, there there was no history of substance abuse, no DUIs, or certainly my life was never unmanageable as right. a result of uh, substances. But, you know, when I got to... Um, I was drafted by Tampa Bay in the second round in 1983 draft. And one of the things I was always really good at was listening and keeping my mouth shut. When I got to that locker room in Tampa, um, that's what I did. I kept my mouth shut and I listened. I wanted to know how the older guys did it because it still blew my mind that somebody was going to pay me money to play a game I loved. And I wanted to be the best at it. Not only did I want to be the best at it, but I wanted to play every down of every game for forever. And I wanted to feed my family. So one of the things I learned to do was do whatever I had to stay out on the field. And that was, that looked like for me, taking handfuls of pain pills every day to stay out there and then handfuls of sleeping pills every night to go sleep and rebound and come back and repeat the same insanity every day. And, you know, I justified it so easy because I had, I was getting the pills from team doctors, mm -hmm. you know, I was getting the pills from team trainers. Uh, I was getting them from teammates. I was getting them from fans. So, you know, I looked at it like more like it was a necessary evil because I wanted to be the best center and I wanted to stay out there every day. And I was not going to miss practice. I was not going to be that guy that got the reputation of always being on the, on the, on the injury report. Uh, that guy who was always waiting in line to see the doctor, the guy that was always missing practice. The trainers were always working on because that's a reputation that, 
you're never going to get away from and what's probably going to be a very short career. Right. So I, you know, I took handfuls of pain pills every day and, and, and called it a necessary evil instead of what it really was, was a full-blown addiction. And that started early in my career. And it progressed to the point that necessary evil did, to the point to where the last couple of years I was playing you know, entire football games and pretty much the whole season was a blur, but playing entire football games in a blackout you know, NFL games and always played good, you know, but I did it in a blackout and I don't remember any of it. And the fact that I played good just kept the insanity going. But you know, when I left the game, I took all those injuries and all that chronic pain and, and, and that, that addiction or necessary evil at the time, I took all that into my private life. And you know, the, 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 the pain just got worse. The injuries just got worse. The tolerance to the medication just got higher. So I needed more and more pills. And for the next 20 plus years, I just doctor shopped all over Houston and pharmacy shopped. And, you know, I realized after I left the game years later, because I really, you know, twiddled my thumbs for many years, figure out what I was going to do next. I thought I was ready to leave the game. You always think you are while you're still playing it, but when it's actually ripped from you, then I struggled. I struggled with a, for a long time with an identity, with a sense of purpose, with, uh, with uh, just uh, who am I? Who am I without football? Because I'd never, I'd never gone through life and not had football. You know, it had always been there since fourth grade, and even before that, you know, I can remember my dad making me watch pro football games on, on, on weekends, even before fourth grade. So football's always a huge part of my life, but when it wasn't there anymore, that was just throwing fire on an already, mm -hmm. or that's like throwing gasoline on an already raging fire, which was the addiction. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I can't tell you how many jobs, in that 20 years after retirement, 20 plus years, I can't tell you how many jobs, and cars and houses and relationships I lost. And, I just couldn't stop. I couldn't mm -hmm. stop the chaos. And, you know, I always thought I was a pretty disciplined guy, pretty tough guy. But with the addiction, yeah. I, 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 it was out of my control. Oh, it was out the window. I, I, I was, it was, yeah. All that toughness and all that discipline and, you know, all the drive and everything that you have as, a, as an athlete that's made it to the pinnacle, I mean, that's nothing mm -hmm. compared to that opiate addiction and that benzo addiction yeah. and, and, and alcohol or anything else. Addiction is addiction. Mm -hmm. yes, it is. And, um, you know, it took some really, you know, people ask me all the time what my bottom was and every bottom I hit had a trap door. It always seemed to go lower, you know, but, um, you know, it was a fact that I played with a guy in Tampa named Tom McHale. Uh, he played right next to me at right guard for many years. And, you know, he was out there after he retired from football doing the same thing I was doing. I was self-medicating his injuries with opiates and benzos. One morning, he just didn't wake up. And this was all in the summer of 2009. And uh, when Tom passed away, the fact that I, uh, I was having seizure after seizure after seizure because I was always running out of Xanax and benzos, uh, had some other health scares, my wife finally realized she was loving me to death and she moved down and my daughter wouldn't let me come around my first grandson. So, but those were things I needed uh, to really find my bottom and just by the grace of God, I didn't have to, uh, I mean, it wasn't worse than that. A lot of people 
they'll recover from the yeah. bottoms or don't wake up or don't wake or up. don't wake up right. um or their bottoms swallow them the rest of their lives in yeah. the form of salami or yeah you but as an athlete I, I think about kind of what you shared about the pressure you woke up and it was you know i want to be able to be on the field i want to be successful i don't want that label of being the guy that is if you are in your position right. somebody else will somebody be. is there you're replaceable right. and you think about all those that the, the from i mean seriously middle school all the way up college and professional that pressure and when you have a young, what we'll say particularly a young person that's brains not fully developed and and this is who i am and this is my identity where Injuries do happen, mm -hmm. especially when you're younger, um, and that pressure to keep going. What would you say to a parent that maybe has a young person that has that passion, which is a beautiful thing, mm -hmm. but kind of being aware of when injuries happen, mm -hmm. kind of being aware of trying to find that balance of this is an important passion of theirs, but having it be a healthy passion. Right, and, and you know, I, I'm guilty of making the mistake of letting football become who I was. It, instead of just something that I was really good at, you know. But isn't it, it hard to do, especially when you got to your level, though? Yeah, but, you know, I, thinking back, I probably had a ton of people tell me, you know, yeah. hey, you know, prepare for another life, prepare for a real life. You know, this is just an opportunity for a head start in life and you can continue playing a game you really love for a little while. You know, but I, I did let it become who I was instead of just what I was good at. But, you know, the work that I've been doing for the last decade that I work with a lot of people who it's still it's still going on, even with veterans that can't put on that uniform anymore. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we talk a lot about the causes of, of addiction. You know, we talk about trauma and depression, anxiety and all the all the things that probably cause people to self-medicate or to numb up. But we don't really talk enough about what causes the depression and anxiety and, and those things. And usually in, in, in the population that I work with, whether it's athletes or veterans or first responders or even CEOs and executives, it's always transitional. Mm -hmm. You know, people don't do well with change. And for whatever reason, it causes all these other problems that those problems lead to wanting to numb up and escape. And um, so that's one thing that I've been talking about more lately is, is getting a handle on, on, on and, and, and whether it's a college kid leaving college, he can't find a job, whether it's uh, uh, a child going through uh, a broken home, a divorce, you know, whether it's a spouse going through a divorce, you know, these are all transitional issues that cause us to be anxious or depressed or whatever. And then we start self-medicating. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think we thought we were getting on it before it happened, but now I think we should even get on it even earlier. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, identify people that are having change issues, you know, and start the, the, the counseling then because really, yeah, we're in an epidemic in this country, or actually it's a pandemic, but it's more of a mental health crisis. In my opinion, and I'm certainly no clinician, I'm not a doctor, but from what I see, you know, it's rad. this country is in a, having a mental health crisis, and it's starting in in, in school. Mm -hmm. You know, and I don't know what the answer is. I know that we're not going to legislate our way out of this. We're not going to arrest our way out of it, but we can educate. If, if we had more, I don't know, programs in place at the high school level, or even the junior high level, of, of doing assessments and, and clinically 
assessing these kids before they leave high school, you know, seeing where they're at, what's going on in their life, start the conversation, because unfortunately, I don't think they're having these conversations at home with parents. Yeah. You know, and they're certainly not having them on social media. No. But a, a trained counselor or, or just somebody who can get in there and ask the kids some questions, what are they going through at home? You know, what's going on in their life? And what are their expectations? And and uh, when they leave school, what are they looking for? And are, is it is it realistic? You know, mm-hmm. don't set yourself up for failure. Um, I don't know. You want me to shut up now? Because yeah. I'll, I'll go for hours. No, but I think the transitional aspect of it is absolutely, you know, you're saying, I mean, it's not just athletes from college to relationships to whatever. Um, there's like People that, that, that world. Yeah, like know. who am I? What, you know, in terms of purpose, in terms of what am, what can I do in contributing to society and, and it's self-image, mm-hmm. you know? And so I think we do. We have so many kids, elementary school, middle school, high school, where that loss of whatever it is, it's a grieving process. Right, exactly. And it, it's not saying, hey, suck it up, you know, sorry you can't play lacrosse anymore right. or basketball. Which we're so quick we're, to do. Yeah, just suck know. it up. Well, it's deeper than that. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so whether it's providing the services, which we need a whole lot more funding to do because we're not doing an adequate job with that within the school systems, um, you know, people just putting out fires. But I think, you know, to parents that are listening or siblings that are listening, educators that are listening, the more we dialogue, Right. It's all about conversation. It's all about conversation. You know, just be a parent. Yeah. And trust your gut. You know, a lot of times parents know something's up, mm-hmm. but they're for whatever reason they're non-confrontational or they don't want to have that hard conversation or discussion with their kid. And man, look what happens. Mm-hmm. You know, bad things happen. Bad things happen. And it needs or it, it needs to be addressed. You mm-hmm. know? Be a parent. Yeah. You know, you're not a you're not your child's friend. Yeah. You're, you're the parent. You're the parent. That's right. hard to, for, for some right. people to hear right. sometimes because then it's like, well, my kid doesn't like me. Well, that means you're doing a good job. <laughs> Golf clap, which isn't, and, it's and not believe easy. me, after 20 plus years of addiction, you know, there was a lot of healing that had to happen with me and my children. But because of the hard work that I did, they did also, mm-hmm. you know, those relationships heal. And and it's just about being accountable to each other and yeah. doing them. Right. And that I, I think also that we suffer and we struggle and being able to um say, you know I'm, I'm hurting you know with whatever form of mental health struggle or addiction i mean was that at any point hard for you when you realized like oh my gosh this is i can't do this myself um and and like did you ever did you did that light go off for you or well you know for so many years i thought i was the only one out there doing that i was not going to say anything because i didn't want to be i didn't want word to get back to the nfl or team or any of my buddies that I was out there doing what I was doing so much guilt and shame but come to find out once I finally did put my hand up and I did get help and I started this program to help other guys like me there's hundreds of guys maybe even thousands you know there's 17,000 former NFL players out there there's twice as many former major league baseball players Mm -hmm. out there and uh, so there's a lot of guys out there and it's all you know it's that warrior mentality it's the way our dads raised us the way their dads raised them where you suffer in silence you you pull yourself up by your your bootstraps and get back in the game you know you dust yourself off big boys don't cry you know it's that mentality that even today here it is 2019 and men won't put their hand up and ask for help Women will put their hand up and ask for help for whatever guilt, shame, pride, whatever ego, whatever it is, you know, the way they were raised, 
And that's where we have to keep this conversation going and educate people. You know, put your hand up and ask for help because this does not end well. And it doesn't. And whether it's I'm not putting my hand up because I'm feeling alone or I'm going to be judged, you end up making a decision either way, whether right. to keep your hand down or up. And when we keep our hands down, that's where self-medicating, self-harm comes into play. Right. And it it's, can be catastrophic. You know? Well, and I, I posted an article on Facebook last week about men and asking for help and how it's getting a little better the last uh, decade or so. Men are, are, are a little more open to put their hand up. But you know what? They're not anywhere near what we should be. And what do we do? We self-medicate. Yeah. You know, we want the pain to go away. We want to escape. Next thing you know, life is going become completely unmanageable because right. of the way you self-medicate. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't have to be that way. There's help out there right. for regardless of what you have, whether it's medication or just therapy or, or whatever, there, there is help available mm -hmm. for everything. Yeah. But it takes some work. Yeah. You gotta do some work. It's raising your hand. It's raising your hand. That's where it starts. Yeah. And, um, and I think about kind of going off the subject a little bit where I, a few weeks ago I was in England and a very good friend of mine um, is very involved on the front lines working specifically with men and how um, it's, you know, suicide is the number one killer for men over there and how suicide is something that's increasing in rank here with people. And, and it kind of brings me to, you know, with our discussion about how, um, you know, when we internalize and, and being scared of what people think and feeling alone and um, feeling like we don't have an identity, how we can sometimes resort to things that are just, um, Heartbreaking, mm -hmm. you know, whether that's ending our life or whether that's kind of, we'll say, air quotes, ending our life through popping pills, right. you know, that, that um, letting people hear we're not alone. And so, I mean, what, if I, if I were to ask you this, I'm going to ask you this, you know, what do you feel like is one of your missions now? You know, how many years have you been in recovery for? Uh, coming up on 10. Okay, rock on. I know, September 22nd, baby. Good on you. So Thank for you. 10 years, you're now, you're focused. You didn't say solid. I said, I didn't say solid. No, that was I was going to wait 12 seconds. <laughs> that was a little predictable, my son. Uh, I said, Mazel Tov, a little, little, little uh, Yiddish in there. Um, but in terms of, uh, you know, your, your, your passion and, and your, your, what's fueled you has changed a little bit. You know, when you wake up in the morning, what is like your, I'm going to rock this out today. What is, what is pulls at your heartstrings now? You know, I work with a lot of athletes, but only because that's easy for me. And, and I have that platform in front of me, but my real passion is helping families, you know, helping moms, helping dads, helping spouses, you know, learn good, healthy boundaries because it's been my experience when families get well, addicts get well, mm -hmm. for whatever reason. And I can even take that a step further. You know, when communities get well, families get well. Yeah. And it, it's just, a, which is what's so great about that town hall concept of bringing communities together and educating. But I guess my passion is that I want people to know that there's hope. You know, every time I read the paper or read these articles, and even on Facebook, you know, you read about people overdosing and, and you don't hear enough hope. Mm -hmm. And there's so much of it out there. And uh, I want families to know that there, there is hope. Mm -hmm. And this doesn't have to end bad. But you have to do some work first. Yeah. And a lot of it's not fun. Sometimes it gets ugly. But you know what? This is life and death stuff. And um, it took me many years to realize that you know, God allowed me to go through all that I went through all those years. And, and all the guilt and shame that I suffered even after putting you know, with with the addiction that I couldn't stop. 
but he allowed me to go through that for the purpose and, and that's to offer hope and to show people that this does work and through recovery and uh, through the through the hard work and therapy that that not only can lives be resurrected but relationships restored and, mm-hmm. and healed and it can be a beautiful thing but it takes work yeah so you know it's, it's just to get in front of as many people as i can and have this conversation and doing good things Oh, you're doing good oh. things, man. And All I can do is plant seeds, right? Yeah, yeah. But plant I think the more seeds, seeds that we plant and right. the more conversation we keep going, and especially kind of you know thinking of that the town hall, which we need so much more of, where it's making it relatable, where mm-hmm. it's telling people you're not alone. Right. It's up close. It's intimate. It's, it's personal. Opportunity to, to to have that conversation right. with people one on one. But saying that you know there is, I, we do hear a whole. I mean, a whole lot of negative, a whole lot of negative, mm-hmm. and knowing you know that. There's a, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. There's a light at the end of the tunnel, but it takes hard work. Right. You know, um, something that just kind of popped in my head, I, I, uh, I think medication can do wonderful things for a million different purposes, but in particular, I want to get your take a little bit for, uh, the, you know, the parent out there that might have a young person who, you know, maybe sustains an injury. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a family history. What kind of questions would you kind of encourage them that maybe they could ask their doctor or kind of approach that they would take and kind of being, we'll say, proactive, mm-hmm. because just like you had said, you know, with your your team doctor was the one that here take these, right, take right. these, take these, and I'll assume probably not a whole lot of questions asked when the right, refill right. bottle came right. around, and when we're dealing with something that's that's highly addictive, when we're dealing with Percocets, um, you know, what would be your advice or your two cents when you're, you're you know, you have parents mm-hmm. who have kids who are athletes. Uh, well, the first thing I would do, especially as a parent of a, of a kid that's taking a prescription opiate or benzo, is monitor the, the, the prescription. You know, I would actually count the pills. I mean, because, hey, like I said, I there was no predisposition mm-hmm. in my family. You know, there was no history of substance abuse. It was pretty unlikely that it was going to happen to me, but it did. Mm-hmm. So I would monitor the pills. I would count them if I had to. I would make sure that I was talking to the doctor. You know, I was making sure that I knew of any refills that were coming up. Um, you know, a lot of times it's it's signs that are right underneath your nose. You know, it's failing grades, it's isolation, it's uh, um, anger issues. And as a parent, you spot that, but you don't really call them out on it or you don't really... You don't really want to associate, it's almost like a denial that, mm-hmm. you know, my kid might be having some substance abuse issues. So it's just about being real with them and having those conversations. And so doctors are the worst, you know, they have hardly any education at all in addiction. You know, the only accountability they have is to the DEA. Mm-hmm. You know, if it went to the DEA, they would keep prescriptions going all the time because it's an easy solution to have you come back to them in, in 30 days. So um, as a parent, you just got to take charge and you got to really watch the prescription, watch for the warning signs, watch, see if your child's isolating, check his social media, mm-hmm. check his telephone or her telephone, you know, just be a parent, mm-hmm. you know, do those hard things. And, uh, you know, it's not that you don't trust them, it's, it's just that you love them that mm-hmm. much, you know, to save them from themselves. Yeah, yeah, Word, yeah. words of wisdom, and I appreciate that. Um, I want to say thank you. Thank for you. For everything you're doing, man. Ah, thank you for um, what you're doing. Yeah, it's good things, keeping things going. And um, I want to say thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. And uh, to all of you who are listening, wishing you all the peace, love, and goodness.
If you enjoyed today's show, I encourage you to subscribe to Goodness Chicks Podcast and pass it along to your friends. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and have a great day. Thank you.